contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. I saw a piece in the New York Times really interesting about cheerleading, primarily in the NFL. So many women for so few jobs. They sign these contracts of adhesion, these NDAs. They're sent out there. <clears throat> they actually go into parking lots. They go into suites of season ticket holders. And even in one case, going into homes where they're groped, they're harassed. They can't even have any fraternization with players. Really is an interesting piece on how this sexualization of cheerleaders started way back when. The authors of the piece, Juliet McCurr and John Branch in the New York Times, now ahead on the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Welcome, Juliet. Welcome, John. Thank you. Hello. Glad to be here. The name of your article in the New York Times this week is Pro Cheerleaders Say Groping and Sexual Harassment Are Part of the Job. And reading through it, it's just striking. Uh, some of the things that these girls, these ladies go through. just want to give you guys a blank slate uh, right at the beginning and talk about what hit you most in your reporting of this issue? What stuck out to you? And we can get into some of the granular details that you reported, but kind of a basic uh, headline beyond the one I read in terms of what you found out in reporting about these cheerleaders. First, you, John. Sure. Um, what struck me is that every cheerleader that I talk to um, has these story, these kinds of stories, these kinds of war stories. And whenever they are sent out into the stands or onto the concourse, or in some cases after the tailgates and into the parking lots, or even to some special events for promotions, um, parties way offsite. Um, there's an expectation, even among the cheerleaders, that they are going to be treated poorly. Um, they'll be verbally harassed. They'll be looked up and down. They might be judged and people will tell them how they look. And in a lot of cases they will be touched and groped, um, they all told me stories about walking through crowds and people are always grabbing their arm to get their attention and walking into suites and sometimes dreading it because I know the guys behind a certain suite door at a stadium um, will be pretty liquored up and they'll want to take pictures and they'll hug them and they'll take pictures with their arms around their waist and sometimes slip their hand down, um, sometimes give them kisses on the cheek. Um, and these women, every single one of them said, this is kind of part of the deal. And they never felt comfortable enough to complain about it because cheerleaders know that from auditioning every year, there are thousands of women that may take their place and may be willing to take their place. And so there's very much a culture of just be quiet, look pretty, handle it as smoothly as possible and move on. And um, yeah, it shocked me just kind of how normalized it has, has become, I guess, over the years. Juliet. Yeah, what what struck me the most was that um, there was this culture of silence that that um, has been around the teams for many years and continues. And that's not only um, a little bit of what John said, which was they're basically threatened every day saying, if you don't follow our rules, of which we have 75,001 rules for you, what do, what you look like, what color lipstick you have to wear, what you're going to wear to the gym and from the gym and which restaurants you ha can be at based on where the NFL players or NBA players might be eating that night. Um, they're scared into, into thinking that if they break any of the rules, they'll be kicked off the team because they're easily replaceable. I know one of the cheerleaders I said, I talked to said 
that every day we're reminded that there's thousands of girls who would take our place today for free. And there, uh, another thing that really, really struck me was that they, most of them signed these confidentiality agreements, which may or may not be part of their contracts, which, uh, which they remember signing, but none of them seem to have a copy of because it's not, um, they're not legally bound to get a copy of them. And so they're afraid to speak out because of that too, thinking, wait a minute, I signed this agreement saying I'm not supposed to share anything with uh, media or any outside sources about what went on with um, me and my time with the uh, NFL or NBA or NHL, whatever it might be. So they're afraid to even raise their hand and say, listen, I was, I was sexually harassed during my time. Because they know it'll be if they do complain, it'll be just it's it's the little person against the big corporation, and and we know how that turns out most of the time. Yeah, and I guess that brings that begs the question: How much of what they endure is because of what you just talked about in terms of knowing how many other girls would take their place in a heartbeat, how many they saw at auditions, how few get the job, and how many want the job, versus just this. Again, like you said, this silence from the teams, these NDAs, and just doing what they're told. Obviously, your answer is probably going to be a combination of all of this, but they're clearly in a non-leveraged position, and they're being taken advantage of it for that reason. Yeah, I'll jump in and say I, I, I think you're. I think you're right. I think it is a combination. Um, the culture is such that when cheerleaders really kind of made their um, their way into popular culture in the late 70s with like the Dallas Cowboys and basically every NFL team at the time, for the most part, um, created an imitation of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders in terms of the skimpy outfits, in terms of the dancing, um, trying to um, establish some a team of beautiful women to be seen on the sidelines to give a um, I don't know to give a respite to what's going on in the field to fill airtime between plays and so on. And that culture has always been, let's pay them very little because we don't need to. Um, let's sexualize them, but they seem to be willing. And we can just look at our additions and realize how many women are willing to do this. And we can subject them to all these things. We can put rules on them that don't apply to the players. Um, and we can basically take advantage of their willingness to do this. And that's now been going on for 40 years. And it's really no different than it was in the late 70s. There's never been any sort of organization um, sort of unionization. Um, very few people have spoken up for all the reasons that we're that we're talking about until now. And I think this is kind of a a tangential um, storyline that we're following from the Me Too movement. That people are saying, "Wait a second, you mean I didn't have to put up with this this entire time?" And there's there's now starting to become a little bit of an enlightenment or a reckoning. Um, and this is just another one of those those dominoes that we're seeing as as part of a broader movement. This sort of, uh, again, this is the lack of a better word, the sexualization of cheerleaders. I mean, back in the day, and, and dating myself, but high school cheerleaders, I remember cheering for us. It was 2468, who do we appreciate? It was cheers, right? It doesn't seem like what we see now as cheerleading is cheerleading. It is dancing. It is, again, for lack of a better word, the sort of sexualization of, cheer, of cheerleading teams. It, is that directly coming from the cowboys of years past? Is that something with culture and society? I'm just interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I think that the, the cowboys obviously were the first to turn cheerleaders into dancers. And if you right. ask any of these, and especially NFL cheerleaders, they'll really not 
refer to themselves as cheerleaders. They say that they are dancers. And many of them have really extensive professional dancing backgrounds, whether it's in a classical ballet or hip hop or tap dancing or uh, modern dance. And you'd be really surprised that they're, they're actually, they've been training for, for most of their lives to end up on the fields on Sunday doing things that, that uh, I'm sure that the five or six year old little cheerleader, little girl, when they were training for, for dancing, they never dreamed that they'd be doing. But, uh, right. but I think that they, they're, they consider themselves dancers and they realize that most, most of the people who look at them don't, <laughs> they consider the, the right. fans, they know that the fans look at them as sex objects um, and, and more, yeah, it's just more eye candy, but they, but they personally think that they are professional dancers and they, they're smart enough to know that they're, they are sex symbols, but also smart enough to know that it doesn't give anybody the right to, to touch them in an unwanted, um, in, if they don't want it. Yeah. Andrew, just, Tag on to that. Everyone I've talked to um, sees it that way that Juliet's describing, and they they wish they could be taken more seriously. Like they realize that they're being seen and perhaps marketed very one-dimensionally, and they wish people could see how articulate we are, how much we might have to offer, what our real ambitions are, what our life is outside of dancing and cheerleading. Um, but there has been a very narrow scope in terms of what the teams and the leagues have projected. Um, on these women, and there, you know, again, has been very little ability for them to speak up and say, wait a second, let me tell you about what I really believe um, in terms of my charity work or whatever else. Um, we don't give them last names. Now we don't do that partly to protect them um, from their identities, but they don't have many of these rights. They're kind of this um, squad of what the teams think are beautiful faces, but we don't want to know too much about them. We don't want them to be too politically active. We don't want them to um, express too many religious beliefs. Just do your thing the way we've molded it for 40 years and, and, and don't be a squeaky wheel. I think that's exactly right. And what's interesting to me is that you have a lot of statements from teams and they're all kind of boilerplate. We respect women. We respect diversity, integrity, et cetera. But as you just said, John, this when I see cheerleader uh, on websites or calendars or off-season uh, pictorials, they're usually in bikinis. They're usually some kind of uh, pinup. Uh, so again, there is that you, you're stating that they want to be seen as more than that, but the teams seem to continue this depiction of them as these sexualized, you know, what this is what they're showing them as. I think this is the this is the problem here for not only the cheerleaders but also society who's you know people might be looking at these cheerleaders and thinking why would you ever want to do this you're just uh, right. you know sh uh, shaking your body parts in front of people they one of the cheerleaders I talked to said yeah we realize that everybody thinks we're stupid and um, they're not really quite sure how to to get around that because they're portrayed in these ways not only um, on game day where they're wearing basically nothing when they're dancing at times but also in these calendars where some teams have them dressed in their uniforms around town. Other teams have them dressed in nothing, just a, a, a towel or a scarf or something on the, on the beach in Aruba. So it, uh, and I think that the cheerleaders, some, some of them consider themselves models. Others think, well, I'm just showing my, my body because I'm really physically fit and, and I'm, I'm not ashamed at what I, what I look like. So it's this different mentality uh, between what the, what the cheerleaders think that they're doing 
and what the public thinks of cheerleaders. I think there's a big disconnect there. John, in your reporting, can you come up with a sort of standard why these women get into it? Because as we all know, it's not for the money. So, and as you guys have detailed so effectively, they do put up with a lot of abuse. So why are hundreds of people showing up for tryouts for 20 jobs? And what is the clear motivation if there is one? Right. I, I think most of them don't know exactly what it entails. So these stories might enlighten some of these women who maybe otherwise would be uh, clamoring to go try out. Um, as Juliet said, many of these women are very accomplished dancers, or they've been cheerleading and or dancing their entire lives. We now see you know, young girls especially starting to cheer at very young ages. And this is the pinnacle. I mean, what bigger stage could you have than an NFL team, an NFL game, national TV, potential to actually go dance in front of a billion people at the Super Bowl if that's where your team goes. Um, this is, in their minds, it could not be any better than this. And they've, they've given the NFL and the other leagues, most leagues now all have cheerleaders, um, kind of the benefit of the doubt that because of your stature as a premier league or as a major sports league, of course you'll take care of us. Now, they all seem a little bit surprised and maybe disappointed once they get into it, but there's very much an ambivalence. Um, even the ones who are telling us these stories, these kind of lurid stories about being sexually harassed, every one of them that I've talked to said, but I love so many parts of this job. It was so exciting. Mm -hmm. It was so much fun, but I just wish they'd respect us. I wish they would pay us better. I wish we had better security when we went to the stands. And even going into the stands, that's sometimes the most fun part because some fans are great. But then again, then I walk into places and I get groped, and that's the worst part of the job. Um, there's just a really wide ambivalence about this job. And again, they've never really had a voice loud enough or strong enough to be able to say, can we take care of the bad parts of this job? You know, on that, I, I do have to segue to that. That I found the most eye-opening part of your reporting that we understand that cheerleaders are on the sidelines and that they'll go on trips and they'll go to events and they'll go, as you said, the playoffs and Super Bowl. But I, having even been in the NFL for 10 years, although we didn't really have cheerleaders in Green Bay, we had local college uh, teams, but I was surprised that these women were sent to private areas with, as you said, liquored up fans. And you even talked about a group of Redskin cheerleaders going to a home where who knows what could happen. And uh, I was very surprised by that. Were you, was this something that was unique to just a couple teams or they're actually going to private suites and even homes? Juliet? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's it was just unique to one specific team or a couple specific teams because we hadn't heard from uh cheerleaders from every single franchise, but but that's probably the what'll what'll resonate with me the longest is that these women were you know, they signed up, signed a contract and most of the times in the contract said you agree to do, you know, t 20, 30 appearances every year. We go to hospitals and and sports camps, and right. we meet the military, and do all these things. You know, we dance in parades, and wow, does that sound great? Or go overseas with the USO tours. I mean, I mean that sounds pretty appealing to a young woman who you know who maybe hasn't traveled very much, um, or would like to do some community service. But in the end, some of these teams are sending these women to private parties, whether it's high rollers and in, in suites, or whether it's just guys who call up the team and say, hey, listen, we'll pay several thousand dollars 
her girl for a couple of hours of coming to our party where we're watching television. Uh, and uh, there's a particular story you're talking about with the Redskins. There were six of the, the Redskins cheerleaders were hired out, and they ended up showing up at a, t- um, at a party with just seven guys sitting there, seven guys in their 40s who were asking them, okay, which one's single? And you want to, want to have some drinks with us? So it was, it was pretty appalling. On those situations, would there be security? Would there be recourse if they did groping or even more than groping? I mean, I, I guess my, that was my question. Like, what what if they really got uncomfortable, what would happen? Well, you would think that they would leave, but I think that they were too scared to leave because not all of the women wanted to leave. And they were also scared if they left this person's house. And most of the time they had no idea who this person was. I mean, are they a big patron of the team? Are they the biggest sponsor? They had no clue. So so they felt pressured to stay. There was absolutely no security there. There's nobody from the uh, Redskins, nobody who's obviously representing (laughs) anybody, um, anybody who would be an, an authority figure who you could say, hey, listen, I feel uncomfortable, you know, or even, you know, a feel threatened. I'm not even sure if they were allowed to have their cell phones on at the time. So it's it's very dangerous as some of the some of the women had 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 talked to me and said because they they just felt like they had nowhere to turn if something would happen. And one of them said, Yeah, what if somebody would have dragged us into into a, a room and locked the door? Who would have right. even known what was going on then? And and that's the biggest I think for me that's the biggest problem because there's the known issue of going to a game, sometimes somebody grabbing you around the waist, maybe pinching your rear end or something, which you know has happened and people have heard those stories. But the, the untold stories are the ones where these teams are hiring out the women women to do uh, to do private parties. And one of the women, I think, in the story says, you know, it's just like calling up for an escort. You call and say how many – the, the team would ask, how many women do you want? Do you want them to dance or not? And, you know, we they'll pay you a couple thousand dollars and a couple beautiful, you know, really fit women will walk through your door several hours later. It just seems totally unsafe. And, of course, the women are the ones getting that money. Are, are not getting that money? or, or Say that again. I, 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 I just said that, of course, the women are the ones who are not getting at least most of that money. Not that that would um, okay right. some of these deals, but um, – yeah, that, that money is team, you know, money that the team is collecting, and then they may they may have paid them a small fee for their appearance fees. So it's it can be a money maker for this, these teams. Absolutely. Right. A lot of the girl, a lot of the women said it was about they would get a hundred dollars for for several hours, while the team would get twelve hundred per per person. Yeah, this inequality, this inequity bargaining, this this unconscionable kind of uh, adhesion contracts that they sign, I guess the question is really what can change? Uh, I know you talked to an attorney that's involved in helping these women. Don and I, before we started here, talked about potential unionization. Is there anything on the horizon that could somehow, beyond the publicity, which is great, uh, somehow even the scales a bit, level the playing field so these cheerleaders have some bargaining power and some strength rather than just doing what they're told and feeling completely silenced and complaining about it? Well, I, I think that the the power of public opinion might go a long way. Um, now that these stories are starting to emerge, um, teams may be pressured because um, if women can start telling us more and more about what they go through and what um, they have gone through, teams may look 
really silly. And especially going forward, if you know we find out a year or two from now, these kinds of things are still going on. It's a huge public relations issue. Um, certainly, the unionization um, is a possibility, though I have not caught wind of anybody really centralized saying we are going to pull all these women together. One of the fears I think that I would have or that people might have is this has happened in the past. Because these are such low-wage kind of um, sort of tangential groups, these cheerleading groups from, say, the ownership. I mean, they the owners kind of keep hands off, so to speak, on these groups. And we've seen in the past when there has been some troubles, they've just disbanded the teams. It's happened in Buffalo. It happened in San Diego 40 years ago when one of the members posed for Playboy. They said it's just not worth it. So you'd kind of hate to see if these women truly, if there are women who truly want to do this, as long as they're being treated fairly, is for everything just to be disbanded because it's not worth the hassle. And I could see that uh, being a potential solution for the NFL. It's just, ah, forget it. Just, just fire them all. You wonder if it could, you know, something like your article could somehow take away what Juliet just talked about, these sort of sending them over, like the Redskins situation. Again, these are maybe incremental changes that could be made, but as you said, John, these teams could react entirely the other way. So it's, if we got hassles, you know, we'll just move on, which is unfortunate. Well, that's true. That's some of the women had mentioned to me too that that's another reason why they were weren't complaining about these things because the teams would say, "Hey, listen, if you <laughs> complain about the way you're treated here, but well, one, not only are, can you be replaced tomorrow, but you know we might um, the team might look at us and, and might fold the whole program. And do you want to destroy professional cheerleading for all the generations to come? So, th- like John said before, a lot of these women actually love cheerleading. They love the camaraderie. They love 95% of the fans, um, they they love the whole idea of it. And the and just the, the other idea of having this whole thing implode when they complain about, you know, being treated correctly, legally being treated well, um, they don't want to say anything because they don't want to ruin it for the rest of the cheerleaders to come. And John, before we started, you mentioned some conversation or maybe an anecdote you had about a television producer or director or, or executive and it is, uh, it really is prominent in watching the games where there are close-ups of these cheerleaders. We're like, oh, that is in your face. And you mentioned that that is certainly by design. Yeah, uh, I just this morning saw some footage from about 40 years ago um, that showed an, an interview with television producers, Monday Night Football producers, saying, cut away, show us. The cheerleaders, you know, we can we have a choice between plays. We can either show a huddle of men bent over or we could show cheerleaders up close. Um, and that's very bit, been part of the mythology, I guess, of especially at the NFL, but now other sports. Um, let's have these glamorous women and that will sort of break up the action that's going on in the field. Um, the question is, you know, have we not grown as a culture um, to you see that, you know, what we've been doing now for 40-some years, um, there might be a, a, a different way to do this, a better way to do this, a fairer way to do this. Yeah, and my last couple of questions, the one thing uh, we have focused, and again, that's my background, that the, the bulk of your reporting on NFL, it, it obviously extends beyond that. Did you find it much more prevalent in NFL than other leagues? Why was that the bulk of your reporting? 
I don't think it was the bulk of our reporting. It was the bulk okay. of the women who had reached out to us and who had, you know, we, we talked to, let's say we talked to one woman from one NFL team. Well, she was able to talk to some of the other people she cheered with in the past, and then those people would call us. So it's a it's a good question. I don't know if whether the other leagues are, are treating their women slightly better or putting them in less precarious situations when it comes to um, promotions away from the uh, away from the stadium or away from the arena but it seems like it kept coming back to the NFL and and how those cheerleaders were treated uh not only by the fans but also by their management yeah i think a couple of things andrew are at play here one the NFL was kind of the original at this um two they are the big the big uh pro sports um giant i guess at least in terms of television viewers um, and so they have the history of the cheerleaders and sort of the, their size. Um, but I will say I've spoken now to women who have also been part of the National Hockey League, part of Major League Baseball. Some people may be surprised that there are cheerleaders in baseball. Um, so it, it's widespread. And I, I think we'll we'll start hearing more and more stories from other sports because these other sports, frankly, over the years, have seen the success of the cheerleading programs in the NFL and have mimicked them to some extent in their own, the NBA has dancers, many people I've spoken to that have done both. The NBA seems to be a little bit more forward-thinking in terms of um, a lot of the treatment of the women, but it's um, they're still running into a lot of the same issues. And uh, the other leagues are are or have been for the last 10 or 20 or 30 years sort of mimicking the success that they've seen the NFL have with cheerleaders. And so a lot of these programs are, are kind of mere images of the NFL. So um, it, it goes across sports, but I think the NFL is kind of the, the big, the big elephant in the room, so to speak. And the question about fraternizing, I know your colleague Ken Belson talked about New Orleans Saints cheerleaders that were prohibited from certain Instagramming and social and had to actually leave restaurants if New Orleans Saints players came into restaurants, etc. Did you find that was fairly universal in terms of the non-fraternizing with players and even directed to sort of stay clear of any interactions whatsoever. Absolutely. I think that's one of the bottom lines for the with the team rules is don't don't talk about the players, don't be in the same place as the players, <laughs> especially if that's outside of the stadium. Don't mention the players on your social media even if it's like, "Oh, hey, you know, uh uh one of, you know, the quarterback just walked by." You can't say anything. It's as if you live in two separate worlds, which is I would say it's universal. Every single person I talked to said that's that's the bottom line of being an NFL cheerleader is that you have nothing to do with the rest of the NFL. Yeah, I've seen rule books, for example, that say you will be fired instantly if you will if you are seen in the locker room locker room of the team. Which, of course, plenty of women can walk in and out of the locker room. Media members do it all the time. Right. Um, but a cheerleader walks in there and she will be fired instantly. They they advise them to walk around the stadium in different ways to avoid the players. Don't take pictures with the players. Don't be seen with the players. As you mentioned, if you're at a restaurant and eating dinner and a, and a player walks in, it's your responsibility to get up, walk out. Um, they, they just can't, as Juliet says, they have to be in two different worlds, and it's really up to the cheerleader to, um, to make sure that separation exists. Yeah, that's what I was going to follow up with that. You just said it. That what, what if the player is the one initiating everything? The cheerleader is just supposed to continue to walk away, ignore. Yeah, it's one of the many rules that these cheerleaders now are saying are are unfair and are an example of gender discrimination, um, that they are held to a much different standard 
than any of the players. We have a story out today that talks about religious discrimination and a woman's alleging that, you know, she's not allowed to say anything about her Christianity. Um, meanwhile, we see players kneel on the field, for example, or sure. start an interview by saying, first of all, I'd like to thank God, that sort of thing. Um, so across a wide spectrum of rules, the women are held to a much different standard and a tighter standard. And I think that kind of brings up my last question point. You mentioned, John, quickly earlier about the Me Too movement and what exactly is bringing this on now. You know, we we live in a fractionalized society. A lot of this is out there from the White House down in terms of misbehavior. And even in the NFL, we've got the Carolina Panthers for sale based on some misconduct by their owner. Um, I guess I'll, that is all to say this public opinion, shaming, et cetera, could change it. But do we see this as temporary? Do do we see real change afoot? And if so, what can change? Uh, again, back to unionization, is there leadership? Is there a move afoot from league or teams to change? I guess that's sort of the lingering question we have here. Juliet? It has to change. I mean, I don't think this is just a temporary thing that women suddenly realize that they have the power to speak up and that other other women and other men will, will stand behind them. In, the, in terms of the, the cheerleaders, I've had some suggestions from the cheerleaders about how things could be made better, including getting rid of these promotions where they're going to personal houses or yachts, things like that. They don't want to do it. Most of the women don't want to do it. They shouldn't be made to do it. Um, maybe change their uh, uniforms when they're going out with the fans, going out in the stands to deal with the fans. Do they have to wear a, a tiny two-piece or can they wear something that they would wear maybe to a VA hospital or or um, a military hospital or a children's camp or something, which would be, you know, a tank top, a sweatshirt and and, and sweatpants. It would be a uniform, could be sparkly also, but uh, it, would, it would limit the ability for for male fans to to obviously grasp them around the waist and give them a squeeze um just doing little things like that would would change things would would help to empower the women just give them a little bit uh a little bit more feeling that they have control over how they're treated john yeah I, it's it's interesting because I had a friend recently, just in the last few days, say to me, like, can you imagine if, for example, somebody really rich, say like an Ellen DeGeneres bought an NFL team, how great would the cheerleaders be? They'd be so much fun. They'd be so much different. And could somebody really change the paradigm? Right now, what we see across the NFL and really across all the leagues is a very similar um, idea of what a cheerleader and dancer is. And that is somebody with very few clothes, beautiful by some standards that the American society has decided is beautiful. Um, and dancing around. And imagine if somebody came along and just totally up into that paradigm. Maybe didn't eliminate it, but just redid it. Um, we see, for example, the Baltimore Ravens have many male cheerleaders. The Los Angeles Rams just hired two male cheerleaders. Could that kind of thing, where you almost go back to the more old-fashioned college approach, um, sort of up in the paradigm and have people sort of open their eyes and say, you know what, we don't have to accept what the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders started 40-some years ago and that everybody else now imitates. Maybe there's a different way to do this. Well, this is great. Really appreciate it. Juliet McCurr, John Branch, New York Times, reporting on cheerleaders and what they go through and groping, et cetera, harassment in their in their daily lives with these teams. This is great. Thanks so much for being with me on the Business of Sports, guys. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. And now, feature of the podcast. We started a few weeks ago where you ask your questions. I'll try to answer them. 
Uh, had a few this week. I'm going to answer one ahead. Keep in mind, you can call in, leave your voicemail question, and I will answer at 484-416-5654. 484-416-5654. I'll answer your questions. The one we have this week is from hey, Jim. Jim Walsh in Atlanta. I have a question about Contavious Street, the NC State defensive lineman who uh, tore his ACL when he was at the New York Giants working out. How does that work relative to insurance, both medical insurance for having it repaired and any loss of value insurance that the prospects typically have insurance? Just curious how that all works out. Any insight you can provide? Love, love all you do. Thanks for the podcast. Thank you, Jim. And really good question. It's obviously there's no right answer. There's no answer that fits everywhere. You have a player coming to a, a team for a workout, and usually the workouts are going to be on the pro day uh, at the school, but teams are allowed to bring in quote-unquote uh, close-by prospects to do actual work. You know, in my experience with the Packers, whenever we had a tryout, a workout, unsigned player, uh, he would have to sign, and and to be honest, sign his life away. He would have to sign that we have no responsibility. We, the team, are not liable for any injuries suffered, and we did have some injuries suffered. We had some ACLs. We had a couple Achilles, torn Achilles during those tryouts. But there was no liability attaching to the team because the player signed away uh, those rights. I would think the Giants would have similar language and similar requirement that they sign these forms before they get on the field, that they're not going to be liable. Now, once the player's drafted, if they get hurt during a minicamp and off-season workout, typically players sign something that says, if you're the fifth pick in the fifth round, whatever it is, you're going to get that money and you can work out and do off-season workouts and do minicamps before signing your contract. It's still going to apply. But obviously, these are players not drafted. These are players without teams having any rights to them. And yes, if you had to say it, they're out of luck. You asked about loss of value insurance, any insurance. First of all, maybe he has health insurance through his parents, through some policy he gained in college. Those are other things. Loss of value is where you actually get a policy through a Lloyd's or some insurer where if you lose spots of where you're quote-unquote projected at the time when you get the policy and it happens due to injury or something else, you can get, you can collect on that. I don't know if this player street had that. It's very rare. We had Jake Butt last year from Michigan that had a loss of value policy. There were differing reports on how much he was able to collect or not. Um, but you brought it up. This is not a good situation, and it happens seems to every year. These players, so many players for so few jobs, thousands of players trying to be in that 250 that are drafted or the 200 or so that are signed right after the draft. Uh, This is a really tough situation. It happened. It'll happen again. I would think the Giants protected themselves in that, and that's what happens. Appreciate it, Jim, and, and I'll answer more questions on the next podcast. Really hope you enjoyed delving into the underworld of cheerleading, primarily the NFL. It's an eye-opening piece in the New York Times, something that will continue to follow on the business of sports and whether there are changes made in uh, relationships between teams and cheerleaders, what they can and can't do, and how they're treated going forward. Something to watch. Hope you enjoyed the business of sports with Andrew Brandt every week. Give us a high rating, if you will. Appreciate it. Mention it to a friend. You can follow us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on TuneInRossTucker.com, wherever you hear your podcasts. 
Follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt, and I'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks for listening to the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.